So this is our last time looking at 1 Peter. Uh, and we're looking at the last three verses and also at the whole book, the whole letter. Uh, because uh, I wonder if, if Peter wanted us to read these three verses and then go back and read his letter again. I think probably he did. So that's what we'll do. Um, so you got your uh, sheets. Uh, yeah, we couldn't get those double-sided. That printer is, has a mind of its own uh, in God's providence. So we can just fold those bad boys. All right, let's read our text. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Uh, verse 12 says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. Mm, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, the study that we've had through this letter. Thank you for the gift of First Peter. For, thank you for how you've taught us. Thank you for how you've equipped us. Uh, you address us in this letter as, as your beloved. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for using that terminology and addressing us. Amazing what you have done to love us and rescue us when we were your enemies. And we thank you for the undeserved favor from you that we enjoy, that sustains us, and which is our hope. Um, and Lord, uh, I pray that you'd help us as we look at, these, at, this, at this book, this, this last time together. And I pray that you'd bless it, uh, bless us through it, and pray that you would magnify your, yourself as we, as we study it. Magnify yourself in our hearts, in our eyes, in our lives, in our church. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, and Lord, please don't allow me to hiccup anymore. Yeah, I'm like on the verge, actually. It's a little bit distracting. <laughs> um, so these are, these are Peter's closing remarks. Uh, he refers to Silvanus, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him. I've written to you briefly. Silvanus is also known by the name Silas, very high-quality name. Uh, it's the name of our firstborn. Uh, so he says, through Silvanus, what does that mean? Uh, it could mean that Silas actually wrote down what Peter dictated to him. Instead of Peter actually writing, just dictated it to him. Uh, this is how Paul uh, wrote the book of Romans. In Romans 16.22, he, he says it was through Tertius. And so Tertius wrote it down, what Paul dictated. Uh, but probably uh, that's not what happened here. More likely, it's that Peter's words here through Silvanus mean that Silvanus was simply the messenger. Um, and uh, whatever, uh, probably, well, I guess, with the messenger, it's even more important that Silvanus was respected by Peter. 
uh, trust is, trusted Sylvanus, so that's why he says, our faithful brother, as I regard him, because uh, he entrusted this uh, all-important letter to get to where it needed to be. And then Peter gives the summary of the letter and the purpose of the letter, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. Go down to verse 13. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Uh, so she who is in Babylon, uh, who, is, who is she? What lady would have been so well known uh, that Peter would uh, have <clears throat> been able to refer to her without even mentioning her name? Uh, in fact, she would have, would have had to have been so well known that everyone to whom he's writing, all these different churches, they would have all known who she is. Who could this possibly be? The only lady that has been suggested is Peter's wife, because uh, remember, Peter was, wife, uh, was married. Um, some have suggested that she is even named in this passage. Verse 13 says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. That last phrase, chosen together with you, is actually one word in the Greek. And uh, I guess maybe it could kind of sound like a name. Uh, kind of depends on uh, the ending of the word, you know, it changes depending on how you use it in the sentence. So sometimes it sounds like a name, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but uh, it's not known to be a name, this word. Uh, and so um, it probably, uh, it's probably is not a name. Uh, and he wouldn't really need to tell everyone that she was in Babylon if it is a reference to his wife because they would have already known that. It would have been a little bit strange to say that. By far and away, the most common understanding is that she uh, refers to a local church. Uh, a local church, uh, oftentimes they were referred to with feminine pronouns. Um, and I think, uh, well, actually we've got written records very close to the time of Peter's writing that tell us that uh, people understood Peter, at least many people understood Peter to be referring to a local church. Uh, the local church, a local church in Babylon. Uh, that's how they interpreted it. So the next question then is, what Babylon is this? Ancient Babylon was in ruins uh, when he wrote this. There was a military outpost, outpost named Babylon, but Peter probably never went there, and there's no record of a church there. Again, most Bible teachers and scholars believe Peter was speaking of Rome, the city of Rome. Peter was sending a greeting to these churches from the local church in Rome. Uh, Babylon came to represent those opposed to God. It's used that way various many times in the Old Testament. Um, and it seems to be even the vernacular of the day when we read, when we read other uh, historical records. People would refer to places as the enemy of God. They would speak, speak of them as Babylon. Um, that city became like a token to refer to those opposed to God. Uh, the name is used at various times to refer to the city of Rome. Uh, and uh, many believe it's used that way in the book of Revelation. So uh, Peter sends his greetings from the church in Rome. That's how I take it. Uh, but he doesn't refer to it as Rome, but refers to it as Babylon, uh, reminding him, hey, I'm writing to you who are suffering. You guys are persecuted. <laughs> I'm writing from the enemy of God even right now. And the church there sends its greetings. So you're not the only one suffering. In other words, we're all of this together. We all live among the enemy of God. I think it's the point. Um, so, uh, and he also sends greetings from Mark. That's John Mark, who is the, he calls the son, his son in the faith. Um, and then uh, encourages them to greet others, Christians 
kissed each other then. Uh, kisses were a lot more common. Uh, do you guys kiss when you greet anyone? No. No. Okay. Only each other. That's good. That's good. You guys should be doing that. Uh, Definitely not him. Definitely not him. <laughs> but others are a possibility. That's, that's what I hear you saying. <laughs> All right. It is, it is significant, I think, that the apostle and the other apostles who spoke of it um, they wanted to make sure it was an expression of Christian affection. Uh, greet one another with a kiss of love. And the love always is defined and described in the letters that they're writing, and the foundation for it is described. And so it definitely they infuse it with new meaning. Uh, it's not just give the regular old hi. It's, uh, it's uh, really show interest and communicate Christian affection to one another. Um, and Peter finishes by wishing them peace as Christians. And, and of course, that, is, that comes to them with, uh, infused with so much meaning because the text describes how peace is the birthright of every Christian. Um, but let's go back to that statement of purpose. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, this is verse 12, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he's written briefly to talk about grace, right? The undeserved favor of God. That is the theme of this letter. Uh, his message is a testimony or he's bearing witness to grace. He has seen it personally and he is giving a solemn, truthful account of God's undeserved favor. Uh, and his message also exhorts them to stand firm in this undeserved favor from God. So he wants his readers to understand the undeserved favor of God to cling to it, don't let it go, but you stay right there in it, right? Stand for a minute. And stand for a minute also, I think, includes the idea of en enjoying it. Uh, so understand it, cling to it, and enjoy it. So Peter was fascinated and overwhelmed by God's favor, and so he considers his letter to be brief. Uh, I love it. Uh, so Peter wants us to understand undeserved favor, but more than that, he wants us to, to stand for a minute to enjoy it. So this is the undeserved favor of God that saves us, that sanctifies us, and that takes us to glory. And so this book, I think you can see it as 11 exhortations to identify, cling to, and enjoy God's undeserved favor, even in suffering. And I think that those, these 11 exhortations follow the grammatical structure of the book. So there's a number of different ways you could summarize the book of uh, of First Peter, I suppose you'd find somebody that would say well, there's, there's two halves to it or there's three parts. But, um, and you could probably group these in different ways, but I think that there's 11 main sections of this book grammatically. And so my goal is to go through each one of these and to really summarize them and say, how is he furthering his theme? He's, he, gave, he set out with this in mind when he started writing. He set out to exhort them to identify God's undeserved favor, to cling to it, and to enjoy it. Uh, and, and this, of course, is the context, right? Even in suffering. So it isn't just, he is saying, I, I wrote to, to talk about God's undeserved favor, but it is more than that. He is, all throughout, the theme is suffering. It's, it's against that backdrop, right? This is what's going on in their lives. So even though you're suffering, identify and cling to and enjoy God's undeserved favor. So let's look at the first one. 
It's in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, so we're going to take a hop, skip, and a jump through this letter. Uh, I love it when I finish a teaching a book to teach one sermon that just goes through the letter and we put it all back together again and hopefully cement it in our minds and keep it with us, right, and use it. So number one, celebrate God's undeserved favor in your salvation. I think that's the point. That's Peter's point in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Um, He starts out, you know, basically saying, praise be to God, right? There's so much to celebrate. And he knows he's talking to people who are suffering. So it's really amazing he starts out that way. But he understands the facts of salvation. And it's as though he's saying, if you understand the facts of your salvation, you too will celebrate. It doesn't matter what context you find yourself in, you'll celebrate. Um, And uh, so technically the celebration begins in verse 3, right? Blessed be the God and Father, right? That blessed be is an expression, it's it's a joyful jubilant expression, an emotional expression. And uh, by the way, this is one of those things. I, I, he, he sets out to, to uh, encourage these, these believers who are suffering. And he experiences a blessing in that process. You can just picture him chewing on what is he going to say? What, what am I going to say to these guys? How can I encourage them? And he starts going through, this is what they need to hear. This is what they need to remember. And as he does that, he can't help but when he starts, just start praising God, right? This is one of the blessings that we have of encouraging other believers. If you're a person who encourages others from Scripture, then you're blessed in it, right? You always find that to be true. You end up being more blessed. It was going to be, you're taking on a new task. I'm going to try and encourage this person. And then as you do it, you're like, man, this is just incredible. You walk walk away so much happier, uh, so much hopeful, so much more hopeful. So... Uh, Peter leads us to to a celebration of four facts of our salvation. Number one, your salvation was initiated and carried out by God. Your your salvation was initiated and carried out by God. Uh, This is in the first two verses. So Peter's saying here, you are saved ultimately because God chose you. He initiated your salvation. He determined to know you personally beforehand. That's foreknowledge. And so he chose you to be saved. And then the Holy Spirit brought about the salvation through His sanctifying work. Uh, What sanctifying work has He been doing? He's causing you to obey Jesus Christ. He's providing forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of Christ on your behalf. Let's look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen... There it is, our word chosen. Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Second fact, celebrate this fact, he says, your salvation brings true satisfaction. It gives both hope and security. Your salvation brings true satisfaction. It gives both hope and security. So verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused. So God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. So the word hope, right, it gives true satisfaction because it gives both hope but also security. In verse 4, it begins to spell that security. To obtain an inheritance that is incorruptible. 
undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. Right? So there's security. We have an inheritance, and it is perfect. It's kept from being damaged or contaminated or disappointing in any way. And, and no one can take it away from us because it's kept for us. So there's security there. Then he goes on in verse 5. He says, who are protected? You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So your salvation brings true satisfaction because you have hope but also security. You have an inheritance that's secure, and you are kept secure for that inheritance, and your hope is based on all of this, right? It leads to all this, anticipates all of this. So then number three, celebrate this fact. Your salvation gives you an unconquerable joy. Your salvation gives you an unconquerable joy. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, but... He's, uh, to spell it out more uh, literally, in this you are greatly rejoicing, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You are rejoicing. You're, you're believers. You're rejoicing. I mean, you're rejoicing in your salvation, even with these trials. Why? Why do you continually rejoice? Your faith is purified and proven in all of these trials that bring you, even though they bring you grief. Verse 7, so the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he says, celebrate this fact, your salvation is what everyone wants. The salvation you have, it, it's what everyone wants. Verses 10 through 12, for, for centuries, God spoke through His prophets about the coming of Jesus Christ, about the Messiah. He promised full salvation from sin through the Messiah. Uh, and so these prophets wrote and they spoke of this salvation. But as they wrote and spoke, they were left with so many questions. They wanted to know more. Who is, who is, this, who is this Messiah? Who is this one who will, who will conquer death? Who is this one who will rise from the dead? Who is this one who will crush the head of the serpent? Who is this one who is God in the flesh? I want to know more about him. That's what Peter says in verse 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace, the undeserved favor that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time or what time or in what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So they trusted in the Messiah for their salvation, but they were left with so many questions. Not only were the Old Testament prophets searching, wanting to know more, but even the angels as well are amazed by this salvation, by this undeserved favor that is being poured out on you. They see it and they're amazed by it. Uh, leaning over the banisters of heaven to see this great salvation that you have. So Peter's saying, rejoice, Christian. You have what everyone wants. Yes, you're suffering, but you are the envy of all the prophets for centuries and all the angels. You are so blessed. So celebrate the undeserved favor from God in your salvation. Uh, so there's a second then exhortation to identify Cling to and enjoy God's undeserved favor. Number two, respond to God's undeserved favor by living in hope, holiness, fear, 
and love. Respond. You've heard about the facts of your salvation. Just celebrate those things with you. So now respond to God's undeserved favor by living in four different ways, in hope, in holiness, in fear, and in love. So verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. So you have, uh, you, are, you are born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance waiting for you. Uh, your hope looks to the future, uh, to seeing Christ. But your hope is, is, is partially realized or fulfilled already since you taste that future glory even right now. And so in light of that salvation, you should, uh, four imperatives. Number one, live in hope. Um, he says in verse 13, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, here's the main exhortation here, uh, first imperative, fix your hope completely on the grace, and it says to be brought to you. But remember, it's actually a participle, present tense participle. So you, you should, it's better translated, fix your hope completely on the grace being brought to you, like right now being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's a long bringing. It's coming to you right now, and it will, it will, be, it will culminate at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So fix your hope on that, on that future hope that's coming to you right now. Um, and you know what? With this great salvation, you're, you're being, you've been freed from the power of sin. And so number two, second imperative, be holy, verses 14 to 16, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. This is uh, an appropriate response to God's undeserved favor because He's, in His undeserved favor, made you obedient Children, you're a new you. So live out this undeserved favor by being holy. And then number three, live in fear. Verses 17 through 21. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. Right? Do so you have those uh, imperatives outlined? Fix your hope in verse 13. Be holy in verse 15. Uh, and then verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear. And then in verse 22, fervently love one another from the heart. Those are the four main uh, commands in response to verses 1 to 12, that celebration of God's undeserved favor. So you circle the word therefore, and then you underline those four uh, main uh, commands or imperatives. And they tell you this is, this is the appropriate way to live in response to God's undeserved favor. Uh, and living in fear is one of them. So that doesn't sound that great, but it is great because uh, uh, you have been ransomed. And so you are, you have been giving precious gifts. So fear displeasing your father because he loves you so much. Uh, Fear disrespecting his sacrifice because you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, That shows his undeserved favor. So fear disrespecting the, that intense, extravagant kind of love that sacrificed His own Son for you. And then he's, he's, He loves you with an ancient love. So fear disrespecting this ancient love. He, he foreknew Christ before the foundation of the world uh, to be your Savior. So live in fear. And then, verse, and then number four, live in love. Live in love. Fervently love one another. And that's verses 22 through 25. Uh, since you have an obedience, this is verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, 
fervently love one another from the heart. Peter, who are you to tell these suffering believers to focus on loving one another fervently? I mean, can't they just take, take some breathing time, just focus on themselves for a little bit? No. No, if you think that, you underestimate the greatness of your salvation and God's undeserved favor. With God's undeserved favor, you have everything you need to love others fervently from the heart. Even when others are pounding you, you can still not be needy, but even have an abundance of love that God has produced in you through the gospel. Verse 23, for you have been born again. You've been born again. This is why you can do it, because he caused you to be born again. Born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. This is the good news that was preached to you. This is the gospel, he says. So stand firm in God's undeserved favor. And standing firm in that undeserved favor must include a deep and intense love for other believers in the church. That's number. That's the second exhortation. Uh, God's undeserved favor supports you in these things. When it's hard to love, when it's hard to hope, when it's hard to be holy... God's undeserved favor for you supports you in these things. Number three, <coughs> crave the word as a feast of undeserved favor. Crave the word as a feast. Maybe, maybe you should say feast on undeserved favor, feast of undeserved favor. Let's go with of. The Bible is a feast of grace. Feed on the word and you are feeding on God's undeserved favor. That's what Peter's saying. Crave the word. Feed on the word. Is, is how, that's how you came to experience the kindness of God's undeserved favor, and it's also how you will continue to grow spiritually. So verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, since, I think it's better to translate that word if as since, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You know how sweet it is. You remember when you were saved and, you, and, you, and through the reading of the Word, you came to understand that He really loves you and He forgives you and you were amazed by that. So continue to feed on that, to drink that in, to savor that. Don't get up from the table. Sit down and eat and drink. Stand firm in God's undeserved favor. Number four, fourth exhortation, rejoice that God's undeserved favor has made you a useful brick in God's church. You are a useless stone. Let's just kick you aside. Just tripping up others, but rejoice that God's undeserved favor has made you a useful brick. He's fashioned you into, from a useless stone into a useful brick in God's church. Rejoice, brick, church. Those are the blanks. You have tasted the kindness of God's undeserved favor through the word. And then by means of God's word, God has made you a useful brick in God's church. Verse 4 says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you, here's the main idea of this section, verses 4 to 8, chapter 2, you also as living stones are being built up. You are being built up. That's the kernel of truth in verses 4 to 8. You are being built up. Here is God's undeserved favor. You're not useless. He is, he is focused on you right now. He watches you. He loves you. And He is building you into something. He's building His church. 
It's awesome. Your life is not useless. You're not worthless, as Paul says in Romans 3, that you once were worthless. Uh, now you're useful. You've embraced Christ as the one choice and precious stone, the cornerstone. And by God's undeserved favor, you came alive and you became a living stone. You attained brick status. And by God's grace, you were carefully placed and you are useful as you worship God. Many see Christ, the stone, the one who was placed in Zion and Jerusalem. And instead of believing on Him, they trip over the stone. They're offended by Him. That means that they stumble over Him. They don't count Christ as precious and valuable. They don't think He's useful for their little building projects. So they trip over Him. He just gets in the way of all the things that they want to accomplish. But verse 7 says, This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, or a rock of right? stumbling. They, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this stumbling, they were also appointed. So rejoice that God's undeserved favor has made you a useful brick in God's church. Number five, tell the world of God's sovereign and transforming grace. This is part of identifying God's undeserved favor. It's part of clinging to it, part of enjoying it. Tell the world of God's sovereign and transforming grace. God has marvelously transformed you. He gives a little picture of that in verse 10. Look at verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's the summary of what he said in verse 9. Back up to verse 9. But you are, says four things. You are a chosen family. That is, you have a family and a heritage. You are, he says, a royal priesthood. You stand between God and man, mediating his blessings to the world, to your neighbors, to the world, to all the nations. And then you are, he says, a holy nation. You're set apart from the world in common allegiance to God. And then he says, you are a people for God's own possession. That is, He bought you. He went and found you and bought you and He owns you and you belong to Him. You're His own possession. And all that was for a purpose. So that you may, He says, look at the end of verse 9, verse, yeah, verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are who you are so that you will tell everyone about God's glory. So proclaim it. Don't whisper. Don't mumble. Proclaim. Shout. Publish, declare it, tell the world of God's sovereign and transforming grace toward you. Then number six, sixth exhortation, Peter gives, show off the power of God's undeserved favor by submitting to authority with patience and endurance. Show off the power of God's undeserved favor by submitting to authority with patience and endurance. This is chapter 2, verse 13. Through, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 7. Big section. The section begins in verse 13 with the word submit. Verse 13, be subject or submit for the sake of the Lord to every human institution. Whether to a king as the one in authority, right? So we've got to submit to humans who are authorities over us. That's every human institution. And so that means, he says, first of all, we've got to submit to the government. And then, verse 18, 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. So it applies most directly to us as employees submitting to employers. Then he goes further, chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands. So this is the excellent behavior and the good deeds that God sometimes uses to bring people to salvation. Look at verse 12, chapter 2 and verse 12. By keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So isn't this something that God is doing this through us in the church as Chris is preaching on on, uh, the roles of men and women, as we find our place in those roles that God has designed. And He's called, we know we stand out when we do that, right? We stand out, and this is how God displays His glory. That's amazing. And so Peter's saying, look for that. Look for where God wants you to submit, and do that. Do that for Him. Do that in response to the undeserved favor that you have. And when you do that, God will empower you to do it, and you'll actually be enjoying His undeserved favor at work in you, and also you'll be showing it off. You'll be displaying it, and God will use that to bring others. What, a, what an amazing plan. And Peter, under inspiration of the Spirit, tells us the plan that God has to bring glory to Himself through us. And it's ultimately for His glory, but it's also at the same time bound up in there is your good because you're enjoying His undeserved favor as you do these things, as you embrace them. Verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, he says, this finds, for this finds favor, or this literally, this is grace, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. This is God's undeserved favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. Because this will come, this will be difficult, right, as we engage in this, this uh, activity of submission. We're, to, we're able to submit because we've been freed from the power of sin. So Peter says, look at, look at what Jesus won for you, verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24, who himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. So just remind us, again, tangibly, this is how His undeserved favor was at work. He bore in His body on the tree, that is under the curse of God, He bore your sins. And that means you're set free. So enjoy this undeserved favor uh, as you submit with patience and endurance. Verse, or number seven, seventh exhortation. I am working. I am Talking fast, aren't I? <laughs> I am working because we started late and, okay, I better stop talking. Okay, number seven, make sure you have all the ingredients in God's recipe for a grace-filled life. Make sure you have all the ingredients in God's recipe for a grace-filled life. You guys remember this one, right? The recipe for the good life. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter starts listing ingredients in God's recipe for what he calls a desirable life filled with good days. Uh, We are to be harmonious, sympathetic, and so forth. And then he lists more ingredients in verses 10 through 11. Uh, We've got to have these ingredients if we're going to enjoy a grace-filled life. A grace-filled life, a life full of God's undeserved favor, where we're enjoying it, 
it includes suffering. Surprisingly so, it includes suffering. It includes patience and endurance and joy in that suffering. It includes real joy and peace that transcends our circumstances. That's what Peter calls a desirable life filled with good days. It's a life where God is with us, for us, and not against us. So verse 10 says, For the one who desires life, to love and see good days. So they're Peter's words, but not exactly Peter's, right? He's quoting. Must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Exhortation number eight. Number eight. This is chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 6. Remember that enjoying and displaying God's undeserved favor begins with hoping in the triumphant Christ. Remember that enjoying and displaying God's undeserved favor begins with hoping in the triumphant Christ. See, after reading God's recipe for the blessed life, we may be tempted to pursue those things in our lives and ignore God as we pursue them. We might pursue godliness without pursuing God. We might pursue godliness without pursuing Christ. But there is no progress made in holiness or godliness without an increasing love for Christ, a devotion to Him, an understanding of Him, remembrance of Him, enjoyment of Him. There is no progress made in the Christian life without that. And that's Peter's point in this next section. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. Sanctify Christ. So we're to hallow Christ. Set Him apart in our hearts as Lord. Right? He is our great treasure. We can't pursue godliness without pursuing Christ. We must be fascinated with Christ, impressed with Christ, impressed with, with His beauty and His majesty and His glory, His love. We, and if we are, we will progress in godliness. It will be. We're promised. We're guaranteed. If you today set your sights on Christ and enjoy Him, <laughs> the Holy Spirit will produce godliness in you. It must be so, right? That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit will do it. That's the promise. He'll do it. You focus on Christ and you love Him. And you will then be zealous for good deeds. You will be fearless and you'll be ready to tell others about Christ uh, when you've got to make a defense. We must understand and remember the glory of Christ. And we must see Him as triumphant. So He goes on to tell us about this glorious Christ. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 22, He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Still in the same section, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. 
Now we come to the ninth exhortation. Number nine, what, are we, what is he exhorting us to do? To identify God's undeserved favor, to cling to it, and to enjoy it. So he exhorts us, number nine, let the coming of Christ motivate you to live a life that is energized by God's undeserved favor. Let the coming of Christ motivate you to live the life that is energized, maybe we could say empowered, energized or empowered by God's undeserved favor. God's favor empowers us, doesn't it? When you, th when you think about how God loves you, and He loves you even though you're a miserable sinner. I haven't been looking over here that much. It's okay. Ah. Uh, the rest of the time. I mean, we're miserable sinners, so... Yeah. yeah, you don't deserve anything, so that's a great response. Keep laughing, I'll get a drink. I interrupted myself. That was dumb. Uh, if you enjoy God's undeserved favor, it makes you strong. It makes you strong to battle temptation. It makes you strong to persevere in the face of difficulty. Right? That's why Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the undeserved favor which is in Christ Jesus. It's the meaning behind that great statement in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, that's not our joy in the Lord, I don't think, is what he's talking about. That's true. If we are joyful in the Lord, we'll, we'll be strong. But I think it's his joy in us. That's the whole point of that section in, in Nehemiah. He delights. He delights in you. And if you, if you can just agree with that and know that that's true, believe that, and remember that, then it makes you strong. I mean, you're okay accepting the trials that he sends. You're able to persevere. If, you don't, if you're confused about stuff in life, you're, you'll, you're okay with that. You'll keep going. You'll trust him. I mean, he delights in me. I can accept anything because I know that he delights in me, that he has joy in me. It's amazing. And uh, so let the coming of Christ motivate you to live a life that is energized by God's undeserved favor. Uh, it's, it's God's grace, that His favor, that energizes us to live for Him. And He uses the promise of His coming to motivate us. This one who loves you, He's coming. The end is, is at hand. You know, hold out your hand. Look at your hand. Maybe you should do it. Hold out your hand. Hold out your hand. He's right there. He's not way out there somewhere. I mean, I don't know how you think about His coming. It's way out there. No, no. It's in your face. It's impending. That's how we're to think about it. Sometimes I do it. I hold up my hand. I say, Lord, you're as close to me as my hand. It's actually closer, but it's still, I can, I can get too close and I have to take off my glasses because I can't see it. But. So I look at him. That's not him, but <laughs> represents him in this little thing. Um, that's, I think that's the meaning of that phrase, at hand. Um, and he's there, the one who loves you. He's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's right there. He's coming. So let that motivate you right now. He's coming for you because he loves you. And uh, so then, you know, he says, uh, verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another 
because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, employing it, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold undeserved favor of God. Right? He's saying you have that undeserved favor of God. You possess it. It's yours. You can't lose it. Don't take that lightly. Steward that. And if you're stewarding that, this is how it'll affect. This is how you'll live it out. You'll be fervent. He mentioned some things he's already said before, right? Throughout the book, sprinkled throughout the book. But he's, but he's saying, thinking about how the Lord is coming for you and the end is coming should, should motivate you to, to do all these things I've already been talking about. And because the undeserved favor is at work in you and it's coming for you. So get to it with urgency. Let the coming of Christ motivate you to live a life that is energized by God's undeserved favor. Number 10, embrace God and the gracious suffering He sends. Embrace God and the gracious suffering He sends. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. There's a sense in which if we are anti-suffering, then we are anti-grace. There's a sense in which that's true. If we're anti-suffering, we're anti-undeserved favor. And I say that in light of what Peter's saying here in this section. <laughs> Chapter 4 and verse 13. To the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. When we suffer for Christ, when we suffer with Christ, we are blessed. God is with us. We have support from heaven. We are held up by his undeserved favor for us in Christ. Verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And he goes on to say, you know, when we have this privilege of suffering for Christ, it's, it's God's judgment. Not judgment, though, in the sense of condemnation, we remember, but in the sense of loving, fatherly discipline which makes us holy and pure. So this is the kind the, the judgment. This kind of judgment is an expression of, his, uh, of undeserved favor for us. Verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, so don't be surprised uh, in suffering and, and don't despise suffering. Embrace God and the suffering He sends. Verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19 says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. And then the last exhortation, number 11, humble yourself so that you can enjoy God's grace. Humble yourself so you can enjoy God's grace. This is like he gets to the end of the book. He's like, I'm telling you what grace is, how to enjoy it, what it looks like to live it out. Man, the only thing that's going to keep you from enjoying it is your own pride. So don't be proud, right? And he gives that, he quotes this Old Testament text in the end of verse 5. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's always true. And I want you to identify God's undeserved favor, to cling to it, and to enjoy it. And that means you've got to be humble. That is your big, that's the biggest threat. 
So that's at the center of, of verses 1 through 11, that, that Old Testament quotation, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that Peter had in mind when he wrote verse 1, he knew where he was going. That's the hub. So before that, at the end of uh, verse 5, says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So all of you clothe yourselves with humility. And then verse 6 flows from that statement, God is opposed to the proud. So verse 6 is, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So everything before and everything after that quotation uh, is in light of that quotation, right? Because God is always opposed to the proud, and He always, always, always gives undeserved favor to the humble. <coughs> Clothe yourselves in, in humility toward one another. What does that mean? Pastors and elders, you've got a shepherd with humility. Humbly seeking to please the chief shepherd in all things. So your attitude, it matters. How you view the people of God, whether or not you want to serve them willingly or under compulsion, that matters. It's a, it's a proud elder who does not love his flock. It's a self-absorbed shepherd that does not love his flock. Church members must clothe themselves in humility by putting themselves underneath the authority of the elders voluntarily. Everyone must humbly cast his anxieties on the Lord. Don't, don't live with anxiety. Make war against worry, against fear, because it's pride. See the greatness of God who loves you, who cares for you, and take all those concerns and cast them upon him because he cares for you. And everyone must resist Satan. He goes on to talk about, right, by humbly putting his faith and hope in God. It's by humbly putting your faith and hope in God that the lion, who is so threatening, it's then that the lion is defeated as you humbly put your faith and hope in God. This is the true undeserved favor of God. So stand for a minute. Questions? Comments? I haven't had time like this before. <laughs> this feels weird. Yeah. What's your favorite section in 1 Peter? Does anything stand out? Chapter 3. Um, basically the entire thing. All of chapter 3. All right. Well, at least you did eliminate four chapters. You've narrowed it down the best. Uh, you could have said my favorite is chapters, probably just chapters one through five, my favorite. <laughs> we could. And what about chapter three? So chapter three, the, the nature of uh, Christ, basically how <coughs> Christ's suffering on our behalf, God's will that we should suffer for doing what is right rather than what is wrong in order that we may emulate Christ. Yeah. Um, because, not just because of his holiness, but because of his power, which is listed at the end, uh, he's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So it's, it's, that's kind of 
it kind of outlines that inheritance that we face that was given in chapter one. Basically, just emulating him through unjust suffering, doing what is right instead of what is wrong, and so it's obtaining the same inheritance as we look to Christ as our example. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyone else? The passage that sticks out. How we got the guard against pride. It it comes in in subtle ways in our lives. We've always got to be aware of it. We all face it, and hopefully we get rid of it. Yeah. But, but it does, it, it's a biggie in most of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of the best ways to battle pride is just to, well, one good way is to read John Owen's book, The Glory of Christ. <clears throat> I love that little book my favorites. You'll never be able to get through that book and read it intelligently and really appreciate it without being humble. Pride always stops us from enjoying Christ, and enjoying Christ enables us to overcome pride. And I think that's why even Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, to long for the pure milk of the Word, uh-oh, we're going to engage our affections? How's this going to work if we've got pride? So he says, you got to put off all these sins first because you can't hold on to your sin and at the same time love the gospel and love scripture. You can't do it. You got to let go of one. Only one can fit through the door. If you catch my picture. picture. (laughs) Anyone else? Anything else? I think the efficiency of the words of the first 12 verses of the book are like they're extremely heavy and it springboards to the rest of the book right yeah um but then you get to see all the ties back to peter's time of christ and what he learned from that all throughout the book yeah sober in spirit yeah sound in judgment you know all the examples that we have written down in the Gospels. And you get to see a mature Peter mm-hmm. finally, like, fully gets it. Yeah. And passes that down for us. Yeah. Much like the writers of the Old Testament uses in chap- you know, chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. Now he's doing that for mm-hmm. us, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's some books like Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it, so we're not going to find, yeah. Uh, What happened there? It's an inside joke. You mean because of the pride? No, a couple weeks ago I knocked over that thing and then kept knocking it over. And then I just did it accidentally. Yeah, so we don't know the writer of Hebrews. Uh, the humble ones don't. Um, <laughs> and so we, we can't look into seeing the significance. Why did, why did he say what he said? Uh, but in God's providence, we don't need that, right? Otherwise, he would have revealed that to us. But we know who wrote First Peter. And uh, so it is a blessing to, to know that. And part of studying the book is studying the context 
And there is a context that includes his life. Uh, and so we are made richer in our study of First Peter by our study of the Gospels and seeing Peter and understanding his brokenness, which is a main feature of the New Testament, right? Uh, Lord predicts. Since when do we have a prediction of someone's massive sin? And also get to see the restoration of it. And so, yeah, it is, uh, it is a wonderful gift. And it does remind me, that, that's, why the, that's, what, that's the importance of having, uh, uh, not, not having teachers on YouTube, but having teachers in the church. God wants us to, to live, God wants elders to, to live as among the flock. And so like Hebrews 13, 17 says, you imitate their lives. Well, how do you imitate their lives if you don't know them? You can't do that on YouTube. But uh, so when, I, when uh, the elders teach uh, and you know them, you're much better off, right? So that's why that's the importance of getting into a church and being tightly knit together with other believers and knowing the elders. And then when you hear them teach, you hear so much more. Um, just like when we read First Peter and it comes alive. When we, when we know Peter better, you know. So that was a little tangential, but something I've thought about with Peter. Because he says, fellow elder. I think that's part of the, partly why he says that. Just think about me. I was a, I'm not that great of a shepherd if you think about it. But we need to be. We're called to be. Uh, it's like a humiliating thing to even talk about for him. But Jesus said, feed my lambs. Feed them. He's... The recipient of undeserved favor. Okay, I'm going to pray. Went over time now. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your undeserved favor for us in Christ. Thank you for choosing us because of your uh, determination to know us. And thank you that you took the initiative to love us when we were your enemies, when we were dead, uh, when we lived in darkness. Um, and thank you for uh, not only foreknowing us, but foreknowing your Son who would be our Savior, for determining that he would bear our sin and suffer in our place under the curse that we deserve. And so he knows darkness. He knows what your judgment is like. Um, he knows the, uh, by experience, the infinite hatred that you have for sin. And because he knows that and knew that on the cross, we never will. We'll never experience darkness. You turning away from us and uh, we'll never know what it means to be under the curse and under your eternal judgment. And we thank you for your love for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. And I pray that we would, that we would be humble. That's where, that's where Peter left us, reminding us, encouraging us to humble ourselves uh, before you. So strengthen us for this, um, that you might be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.